0: the podcast where knowledge meets curiosity. Join Professor Margaret Vaughn as she explores groundbreaking ideas with top scholars aimed at sharpening our thinking. With her guests, Dr. Vaughn dives into a world of profound insights and intellectual adventure. Our journey to getting smarter starts here. Welcome to Getting Smarter. I have the esteemed Dr. John T. Guthrie, who is the Eugene Mullen Professor of Literacy Emeritus in Department of Human Development and Quantitative Methodology at the University of Maryland at College Park. He received his PhD in Educational Psychology from the University of Illinois in 1968. After being a faculty member at the Johns Hopkins University, he became Research Director at the International Reading Association from 1974 to 1984. Dr. Guthrie is the recipient of the Oscar Causey Award for Outstanding Reading Research and is a member of the International Reading Association Hall of Fame. In 2004, he received the University of Maryland Regents Faculty Award for Research Scholarship Creative Activity. In 2011, he was elected to the National Academy of Education, which addresses addresses research to national policy. Dr. Guthrie, it is a huge honor and privilege to get to visit with you today. You are one of my favorite, favorite heroes in the work, and I am just thrilled and excited to share some time with you this today. How are you?
1: I'm doing very well. It's my privilege to be here with you, and um, I really like the, uh, the the type of thinking you're doing in the, in the field of agency that's related to to our our work.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Guthrie. What a like what a, a huge honor it is to to visit with you and, and just hear you. And thank you, thank you. Um, like I shared before, I'm gonna try really hard to not come off as a super fan because I really am a super fan of your work. So um, I will try to play it cool, um, which will be a little tough for me. So um, before we get started, so could you tell me a little bit about why uh, did you go into the field of education and teaching? Could you tell me just a little bit about you and your background?
1: Well, let's see um, where to start. I guess I would say your question prompts me to recall way back when my father used to read Carl Jung, who was a psychologist, and he loved him. And we learned all about him, even though now all his ideas have been kind of debunked by people. My mother was a first grade teacher who emphasized reading. So then it turns out to be a very strange thing that Young, who is a psychologist, I picked psychology from my father and reading from my mother, and I became an educational psychologist. Wow. That's fantastic. Strange strange beginnings. Another another father in my life, a a scholarly father, was Dick Anderson, who has worked at the University of Illinois, really put reading on the map as a scientific study domain to do research with. He was my major advisor and he wrote this book called a nation of readers that you may know and they made a stamp out of it the government made a stamp yeah, yeah following the title of his book and a 20 cent stamp that you can get if you want to that's wild um that was a a wonderful stage of my career very early i did something pretty different and that was i went to johns hopkins as you mentioned and I started a school for children with severe reading disability. It's not that well known. You may not have known that little yeah. fact. Yeah. We had 40 children coming to school every day at Johns Hopkins who were total non-readers at the age of seven, even though everything about them was otherwise normal. They had good hearing, vision, and they had one year of schooling, but they were non-readers. And so we got them reading, first of all. In one year, we got them back into their school with, with heroic efforts from the wow. teachers. And wow. also we studied their brains. We identified the location of the brain that reads in those in those years. Wow. We studied the genetic transmission of severe reading problems, which is very clear. And it worked with a behavioral geneticist at Johns Hopkins. So we did those type of studies. Which I really liked, and some cognitive studies, like what are the cognitive challenges these children face, and um, <clears throat> so that was a unusual start into the field of reading. And I went from there to the International Reading Association, um, as as you said, and so then that was a period of service to the to the field. I was doing my most people do their research first and then they do service. Right, right. <laughs> well, I did service first. Wow. And then research. What was it, was it st- like
0: to be at that school? I wondered like what was that like with that experience to just have that direct ability to kind of have that transformational impact? Would it
1: Well, we um we had as I said 40 students. Wow. Um with the ratio was 1 a teacher to ten students and and there were assistants so we had a in, instructional intensity
0: right. yeah
1: um with a yeah today you would call it balanced reading a lot of phonics but also a lot of comprehension and um literature and information book reading and so we just had a reading intensive curriculum wow. Wow. that uh, that did honor their need for the basics which they didn't had not learned and the <clears throat> 80% of these students had a father who could not read a lick. Interesting.
0: Yeah. Wow. And
1: one father came in and said, "Can I doctor, can I close the door?" "Yes, okay, you can." He said, "I got to tell you because I ain't got no reading. I'm a bricklayer's assistant. Stand all day on a ladder holding bricks. And I don't want my son to go through that." So you better help give him a life I never had. That's great. Wow. That's what these fathers said. And wow. there were other more severe repercussions of, of illiteracy for these men who came in. Mm-hmm. And um I I never promised them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I never promised them anything, but we did get every kid That's back wonderful. out into functioning in school. I can't say they were the star of the school, but they survived.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I find that so fascinating just to have that direct impact and to be able to see it and to, you know, that just seems to me that connection of theory to practice, just moving it right into, to uh, you know, student success. I think that's just so noteworthy.
1: And a lot of these students had come, you know, with no confidence, no no sense of who they are,
0: yeah.
1: timid kids, many of them on on a medication for anxiety or or attentional issues. So I saw <clears throat> the pain of, of failure in these seven-year-olds. And I, I, I'm sure that impacted my desire later on to address the affective side as well as the cognitive side of reading. Nice.
0: That's wonderful. All right. So that's such uh, an interesting, um, you know, that the school that you're talking about, I find that so fascinating. I didn't know that. So that's a really interesting component. I do have
1: a couple of publications I could show you from from those uh, kids. Um, But basically, um, they were sort of describing the science. I didn't ever describe the intervention that we had for them as much as what they were like and what their cognitive systems were like. Nice. Um, okay,
0: well, that's interesting. Okay, so um, I think from there you were sharing about, you said you did the service. So tell me a little bit about the International Reading Association, the service there.
1: Yeah, um, I went as we call the research director, but we didn't do research, but my job was to bring research to teachers. And so one of the things I did was to have a column in the two journals. Uh, like Literacy Today used to be Reading Today and so uh, and then the other was Journal of Reading and so now they'll have different names today but I did two column in each one for four years Uh, so two columns a month for four years and my goal was to bring some new research idea that's useful to a teacher.
0: That's wonderful.
1: And it was a it was a very inspiring thing to do and I worked, evolved a a kind of a template I could use to uh, reach teachers in that way. And uh, it, it gave me a scope of of thinking about reading. And later on, as you know, I got out of out of the cognitive side into the affective side of reading. And I know that that broad scope at IRA helped me to be able to make that to make that sort of paradigm shift into the affective world. I will say one interesting experience I had at that time in International Reading Association was, I went to New Zealand for three months. Whoa. I took the place of, of a faculty member who went to London for a sabbatical, Marie Clay. Oh, wow. Went to sabbatical. She asked me if I would take her place and teach her courses in New Zealand. How wonderful. And my wife came with me. We shipped the children to their parents, the grandparents. Now, the, and I studied that at that time, the students in New Zealand were the best readers in the world. Oh. According to an international, a huge international study. And I was very interested. So I went into the schools and visited and it wasn't, the schools were good and they should do a shared reading model where a teacher has an easel and shares reading with the students. And there's a lot of interaction between them. And But what went on in the classrooms was not so remarkable. What was remarkable was that New Zealand is a print culture. I, we went to dinners with people and they asked about the most exotic, these like 11 year old kids would ask about American politicians from Minnesota interesting whoa they knew america very well plus they could talk about the antarctic and how fast it was melting and um so extremely knowledgeable well i i then studied i did a study published it later in the reading research quarterly on the print culture the new zealanders read six or eight times more than americans
0: wow
1: more books They read newspapers, too, but it's book reading that makes you literate, that makes you deeply literate as a knowledge consumer. Mm -hmm. And so I interviewed people of all walks of life in New Zealand, and um, they read a lot of British literature because they identify with England. So I had one time a, a woman I was interviewing cried because she so loved the character of Rochester. Oh, <laughs> in English literature, that she just wished she had a Rochester in her life.
0: Oh, wow. So they really embodied those books and those texts. That's amazing.
1: They did. They lived these books. Yeah. And they also read nonfiction because many New Zealanders, only 3 million people, and they have an economy just to almost 90% of ours. So, how do they do it? Well, they have two jobs. So an engineer will also have a job as a bricklayer or a or an architect.
0: Right, right. So wow. in
1: order to they learn that second job by reading. They don't go to school for it. So they import 14 wow. times more books per capita than any country. Hmm. They import all these books and read them and like them and have a and build a culture. So they are readers. And I know that had a huge impact on my thinking about what is reading anyway? Yeah. Reading is just not a skill that you, that you do at school and forget in, in their world. Reading is, is your life. And yeah. it's an emotional, cultural life as well as a, a working life. So this was a high-impact experience. Uh, and um, my wife was my research assistant and helped me oh. out. I love that. That's wonderful. And um, <clears throat> I got to tell you one very quick thing. I, I read about the various groups of people in New Zealand. So there are the English, they call them the Pakiha. That the, means the white. and then But then there are a lot of Samoans and a lot of Maori, just like the native I- Indians of New Zealand. So I interviewed them too. Well, I found out in the Samoans the head of the family always maintains his head above the heads of other people in the room. If you want to speak to a Samoan man, you have to have your head lower than his head. Oh, okay. I knocked on the door to interview a Samoan man in the community. And it was an empty living room and he was sitting on a stool on the other side of the room. So I crawled across the living room floor to keep my head lower than his. And I well, knew that I either ruined the study or I made the study. Well, <laughs> it turned out I made it. He he talked, he loved the relationship. I sat oh, wow. on the wood floor. We talked for a couple of hours and now they're reading in Samoan as well as in English. Wow. And he explained how all that worked. And then I walked out, you know, the wife came and said, John, you can walk out. No wow. problem. Wow!
0: Wow! What but an amazing story! That's amazing. Tried
1: to accommodate their custom as a way to build communication, and then hear about their literacy. Anyway, they the Samoans are also in a print culture in, in that country.
0: Wow. So,
1: so that's a contrast from the typical American community. I, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I regret to say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that story. I love how you crawled and. Uh, just yeah, <laughs> I think that's fascinating.
1: I had to accommodate. I knew I was either killing it or winning it there. Yeah,
0: yeah, right. It kind of it goes either way. You're like, oh, you know, in that moment, I love that. So, so tell me a little bit more. Was it, were there some other things that um that you were going to share? That tell me a little bit about some some of the highlights. That wait, I guess what I wanted to ask you is when you, did you talk to Marie Clay about those findings? What was that discussion like?
1: Well, we didn't talk too much yeah. about it. Uh, they, she came back. We didn't spend time yeah. crossing over. Um, the, they liked it. The department I was teaching in, I taught a course during this whole thing. Yeah. And they liked it. They offered me a job. In, in, oh, really? <laughs> in Auckland University, but I didn't well, take it. Yeah. I had four kids back here to, to right. take care of. Right, right. That's funny. Anyway, so that was, it was a a landmark experience in my development. And um, so my next, uh, my next trip was then the University of Maryland after no. IRA. I went to Maryland and uh, got a, a chance. To, I had done research at International Reading Association kind of on my own, on the side, I had gotten grants and done research. Um, and so I went to the University of Maryland to do what I had been trained for by Dick Anderson, to undertake systematic research.
0: Wow. So so when you first started there, had you already had this vision of what you were going to do in the work, or did you kind of take those pieces of how you, you know, the school experience, the work in, in New Zealand and... Did you already have it formulated that early
1: on or? No, I didn't. Uh, when I went to Maryland, I knew I was going to do research on reading. And um, I did have an interest. And that was I had with a student of mine, I, you know, IRA was in Newark, Delaware, where the University of Delaware is located. So a number of doctoral students from the Department of Ed came to me as their dissertation advisor. One of those was Erwin Kirsch, who went and on and had a career at international at at educational testing service. He and I together looked at workplace literacy. He was interested in this, and I was too. And so we found, we kind of discovered the whole idea that people in workplaces are reading manuals, they're reading directions, they're reading diagrams, and they're reading, but it's not a novel it's not traditional and we discovered and documented in the research l- literature that these two types of reading workplace reading and fiction reading are different animals very different animals um and you learn so in workplace reading now i'm oversimplifying when i say workplace reading but we yeah. we we developed the word document for what they read because it's not a book it's not narrative it's directories and manuals so we study telephone operators working at the telephone company like if you call up and ask to have a telephone put in and you want red instead of black Mm -hmm. you know they look at a manual that's six feet long nowadays they look into their computer but either way they have to search for information Mm -hmm. and it's not a narrative so they're searching in what we call it a document so reading is document search. It's not the pr- comprehension of prose. Oh. You're not gaining knowledge, you're gaining some factual information and you have to navigate and very literally navigate a huge text. And that so we showed that, that navigation is a different cognitive system than reading to gain knowledge about um, you know, the tropics. So I went to Maryland knowing this and thinking that would be interesting. So I built what you might call a cognitive model, like exactly what processes in your eyes, your ears, your language, your cognitive processing system, your thinking, your knowledge, what's working when you're searching a document compared to what's working when you are comprehending a fictional text, and there are different systems working. It's different models. These are different models that are needed to explain a successful reader. In a. and so I did some of that at Merrill. Um, and so then I guess I would say <clears throat> the upper, the, uni- the the you know the government U.S. government had a reading research center. And it had been at the University of Illinois, run by Dick Anderson, my advisor, had yeah. been the director of the, of the called the Center for the Study of Reading. Mm-hmm. And then the US government, like every five years, they they have a new grant competition. So I saw this grant competition coming down the road, coming at us in the schedule. Right, right. Uh-huh. And I said, you know, I think, I got to apply for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, there were some heavyweights at Maryland at the time, including Mike Presley, who is a very brilliant Mm -hmm. mind, and some other people. But I also knew we needed to collaborate with other people. So we did collaborate with University of Georgia and Rutgers University. But I wanted at that time to do the true research thing, which is to create some new knowledge.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, that's the point. That's the point of any study that you do. Right, right. And so I said, what is the unstudied aspect of reading that a center could investigate? Right,
0: right.
1: And so then I began thinking about it. Okay, we got a cognitive system. We know how people read, how they read books of fiction and how they read directories we know this but we don't we haven't accounted for that print culture in New Zealand now that's those people desired had a desire to read but we haven't studied the desire to read and so we have the answer to how but we don't know why
0: Yeah.
1: What was the why for it? Yeah. What was the why? Why do people read? And what are the differences between people? So, okay, motivation to read. And so I realized that could be a a big question for the reading field. Yeah. So I went to American Educational Research Association convention one year in order to find out what studies are being done on motivation to read or do anything else in school, like Mm -hmm. math. Mm -hmm. I spent four days at the convention, looking, looking, looking. I went to every type of session. I went to the posters. I went to the students. I went to the major addresses. There was not a single study on motivation in American Educational Research Association convention. So I thought, okay, well, we're not reinventing the wheel. Right, right, right. If we go in there. Mm
0: -hmm. So
1: I said, let's study motivation. But then I also, I I asked people about what do you think about studying motivation? They said, you can't do it. I said, well, why can't you do it? Oh, it's squishy. Yes. (laughs) It's completely squishy. It'll fall through your fingers. Uh, No two people will ever understand, you know, the same thing. So no, you can't, you can't study it
0: That's,
1: wow so i realized that <clears throat> it was going to be a stretch to to do this thing and we're going to have to make believers out of people so the first so we did write the grant proposal and i have a little deviation here from my own storyline and that is we wrote the grant proposal collaborating with two universities submitted it and they awarded it to us instead of the University of Illinois. Wow. So when I wrote it, I was writing a proposal in competition with my previous advisor. Ooh. Oh, now that's a hard thing to do.
0: I was going to ask you that. That sounds hard.
1: That's a hard thing. It hurt to oh, do that. Writing. Yeah, it hurt to submit that. I'm
0: sure you're proud. I'm I'm so so proud.
1: I knew. I knew he would not denigrate me for it right right so i will say this when i got the telephone call that we had to receive this award one one day at 9 a.m uh-huh my previous advisor dick anderson telephoned me at 10 30 and congratulated me on this oh that's wild he said i would never have expected anything less of you that's great uh, and basically thank you for keeping it in the family generous of
0: him oh wow <laughs> what a that's a, what a great model huh that's a wonderful way to
1: and be. so that that was that was it and we what our goal was <clears throat> it was to essentially study motivation now we also added the word engagement because i knew that Everybody would think motivation is too squishy. And so we added engagement because it sounded a little harder. Okay. It sounded like we could measure both of them and they would and they would work together in some way.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So our early questions were, What what are the motivations kids have to read? And what does engagement mean? <laughs> so the first things we did was to answer the question, what are the motivations and how do you measure them? So now we didn't have any background. There weren't any questionnaires in the field to go look up. I mean, we did our homework, but no, there weren't any. So we had interviews. We interviewed kids in depth. I love that. About grades two to six that yeah. we were looking yeah. at elementary school. Uh interviewed them in depth. I mean, like three hours, I would say 240 kids for three hours each. Not a small data set. Analyzed that and we distilled out of that, we found 11 motivations. So some kids were reading to compete. They wanted to be better than their, their buddy, you know, can I read faster than him or or not, you know, they were competing. Some kids just they love t- topics and so on. Now, we, we worked out 11 motivations. Now, it has since been distilled down to something like five that I believe are, are central and crucial and have been supported by many other uh, researchers. Um, so, the, the first thing we did in the new National Reading Research Center was to establish this this scope of about five motivations and um, and <clears throat> and these the, the role of these is not complicated. It's like grit. Yeah. It's like Angela Duckworth has the idea of grit. And with grit you get through. And so basically we saw engagement then as the variable that pushes you into achievement and pushes you through to new knowledge growth. Um, And it's kind of the behavioral aspect of reading, doing the reading, doing the writing associated with it. Those behaviors are driven by the motivations. And, And the motivations also enable students to bring up that whole cognitive system. So you have a cognitive system of words, vocabulary, retrieval, integration of sentences, inferencing, schema, being refined as you grow your knowledge. Where's the energy from all that? The energy is the motivation. They're the fuel for cognition. And then we showed these things with experiments and and data. Um, And so that was our, like our first, our first steps. Now the motivation questionnaire we created, MRQ, Motivation for Reading Questionnaire. At least one, one group has said, we have a better idea. A, A German research has taken over quantitative study of motivation. They've taken it over and they're doing, they got five huge R&D centers on reading in Germany. Wow. And they're way, in, way streaking ahead of the US right now. And they have a very good version of our original questionnaire.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: But our original questionnaire is still the most widely used reading questionnaire in the world. Yeah, by, I, I, by I, love,
0: I love the fact that you said that don't do that because it's too squishy, you know? And <laughs> I love that. I mean, you know, just to make a small connection here, that's the same conversation about agency. And my my response when people would say that, and I'd said, listen, if they could do it for motivation, they can right. do it for agency. Cause I, yeah. you know, that was the model, you know that is the continual model. You know, I've, I've written that to many reviewers who said, yeah, this doesn't seem like, and of course I quote your work and I say, hey, by the way, we can, because we can do this. And so I just, I've really appreciated that because I, 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 have heard that often about the concepts of agency. And I think if we can do it with motivation and engagement, you know, we can, we can surely do that with other aspects. So
1: I just love, I know. You- <laughs> I, I'm sure we can. And, and, you know, you have <clears throat> found so many layers to agency and so many threads in that fabric it's really fascinating and and i'm sure that agency can be as you've already done conceptually sort of identify key constituents if there are in multiple ingredients there that probably can be independently measured one way or another and show show how they operate together well you're fat it's fascinating
0: i i so tell me okay so that that in itself just that um the phone call, the work, the layers and layers of hours of talking with kids, which, you know, I I find that to also just be so incredible and so noteworthy. I mean, at that time, were people doing that kind of research in, you know, with kids in schools or was that a new a new way of looking at research?
1: Oh, they were doing research in schools. Um Many, you know, many schools, there was, a, you know, the first grade studies were done yeah. by Bob Dykstra, and that was in school intervention. Does, you know, what kind of intervention works in first grade reading? You know, do you, should you add phonics to literature or not? They were asking that. Um Now they, but they weren't interviewing kids about. Kids. Their yeah, purposes. I was going to
0: say, I find They're that human. to be. I find that to be so uh just commendable because I think sometimes we don't listen to kids and that, I mean that's a big sweeping statement but I think your work is such a testament to the importance of listening to children and what they think about what they're doing.
1: <laughs> exactly and the payoff is you can take it to the next level and so what you do is replicable so you okay. see I mean we we showed that let's say Self-confidence, self-efficacy, which kind of means self-confidence, that's not the same thing, for example, as intrinsic interest. It's not the same thing as loving the topic of reading about adventures. Right, right. You can be, you can love the topic and not be confident about it, or be confident but not love that topic or any topic. That's why. So basically, we took these insights in and quanti- quantified the relationships between them and they're <clears throat> semi independent these these five are all and and the, the five that we believe in as basic fundamental ingredients in the motivation system was this thing of self advocacy belief in yourself i can do it and, and the next one is autonomy i can decide about my reading. I, I can decide what to read, how, how far to read, how, how hard to read. I can make choices of books that interest me. Cho- I can make choices well. Social, I like to interact. I like to tell. I like to listen about reading. I'm, I'm a social a- animal in my reading. <clears throat> These are three really big ones, and, and the theory of self-determination utilizes those. But then I think we have to go beyond that. We have to go to value. Reading is important to me. That is a value. It comes a little later. It's not there for second grade. It's stronger for middle school. Right. Valuing in in middle school, you can't expect reading to be interesting every day. Teachers can't do that. Right. But it can be important every day. It can be. It can seem relevant to your daily life. It can seem relevant to your future life. So value can be included in the context for reading through reading uh, or or any other topic, math as well. So I add value to the list of fundamental motivations. And the last one I would add is agency, the sense of being heard, the sense of being a, a contributing member to the community, that sense of making a contribution to the system if you want to make that contribution. Now, I, that's a little, we have not studied that in our system. You know, that kind of came along after we had done a lot of our work and I still put it in the shortlist because I think that it's, um, it, it deserves its place. And mm-hmm. quantitatively, it will be documented very soon that it has its its own contribution to make um and so now i would say those are the five motivations that that drive reading and and, and it, it they change from interest to value in in school uh to a certain degree uh and then all of them motivate doing the reading and doing the reading is is the single strongest predictor of achievement is behavioral engagement. Right, right. And so if you don't have behavioral engagement, yeah, self-confidence isn't helping you. Motivation doesn't do it on its own. Yeah. But without without motivation being generated into it, engagement, uh, you don't have achievement. Uh, so you need the abundance of materials, diversity, the, the fit of materials to kids in order to be uh, having the reading activities of a classroom or a school being generated into achievement for those those kids and an achievement on behalf of uh, of the uh, of the school. Um, So. uh, Now that I want to just say that very recent research is even more fully underscoring engagement than we did, Um, there's some now. A lot of that research is being published in psychological journals, like the Journal of Educational Psychology. Mm-hmm. That journal has always published more reading research than any journal,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, including the Reading Research Quarterly, just because it's large and it's got a national, you know, huge national following. But nowadays, the um, the the I read a meta-analysis of over 300 studies of how engagement relates to motivations, but also well-being. They're connecting well-being to engagement and showing that if a kid is contributing to school, active, learning things, talking to other kids, actively, behaviorally engaged, they feel good about life.
0: Yeah. I loved that point. That was in your handbook, the handbook chapter, right?
1: Well, yeah, but it's even more strongly being shown in these new Oh, these even new, more recent uh, yeah. yeah syntheses oh. but yeah that's true i mean i did say a bit about it there in okay. that handbook chapter
0: that's so exciting this just to see how it's growing you know i feel like yeah. you were and you know you you are really at the center of how it evolved and it's shaped and it's transformed and i i i find that the i find that your early connections to it are just really fascinating with the, you know, international and your work at the school and then your early work. I find that to be, do do you see the straight, I mean, do you see kind of the braiding of how it kind of connected to your, all of your interests and how it sort of developed into your work with Corey and the concept oriented reading instruction work? Do you, I I
1: I, I see there's, I see these threads now. I didn't design it that way. You know but I'll oh, um, take credit say oh yes <laughs> I, know. I can see I can <laughs> see the threads there that's for sure um and um <clears throat> now I think the the next stage of of uh of this is this is the question you know can you change the motivations can you now that's a crucially important question for two groups of people first of all for teachers
0: mm-hmm, is this mm-hmm.
1: knowledge any benefit to me as a teacher or or is it just an abstract science that may be interesting but it doesn't help the education world much? can you change it <clears throat> the other group it helps is the scientists right right because now we have a correlation of motivation and achievement they correlate but that but maybe achievement causes motivation so which way does it go? And which That's way right. is stronger? And so it goes both ways. Um, and so we de- we tested that in reality, in schools, not in a laboratory in a university. I
0: love that. I love that.
1: And um, so we asked, can you teach it? And there's one study. Uh we had multiple studies on that question. I would say I, I haven't never counted them. 25, probably yeah. twenty. One of them, uh, you, I know you've read, um, did a special thing, which was it compared, usually we compared our big model of supporting motivation against traditional teaching, whatever been going on in the schools, business as usual in school. Mm -hmm. And we saw advantages. So then we said, okay, let's, when we were teaching, we were also teaching two other things. We were teaching uh, concepts. So we call our framework concept-oriented reading instruction. So we're teaching an idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: to fifth graders, we would teach the science idea of adaptation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you can see how much scope there is, how many different kind of books you can have on this subject. So we would teach to a concept. We'd also teach strategies for reading. So you might have, how do animals live in a pond? And what type of animals and what do they do for the pond? So then you might read um, in nonfiction books, you might read fiction books about that. And so we then, uh, we then said, okay, the kids need strategies for reading to learn. And we taught strategies that other people like Jerry Duffy summarizing, making a concept map, writing inferences from paragraphs. Jerry was talking about scaffolding these skills. And we also scaffolded these skills At the same time, we provided motivational support for the five motivations, motivation of being self-confident, of being social, Mm -hmm. of making choices, of valuing this work and of having your own voice be heard. And so basically then we had a study where we compared teaching the strategies, but no motivation support. And what the result was, when we put motivation support on top of strategies, The kids had a big jump. Yeah, yeah. Their comprehension of texts was higher. Their knowledge that they gained from texts was higher if we put motivation support behind the strategy support. So uh, teachers can give support that makes a difference in achievement. Motivation support makes a difference in achievement.
0: You know, when I hear that too, I think, Okay there is the answer. You know, I know that you know we don't advocate for the silver bullet. I don't think we do, but I think this is information that drives everything of what we should do with reading instruction. Period. Right? Well,
1: it, and it and it's widely recognized as a yeah. as a valuable ingredient at this yeah. point. If you look at the states of the United States, most of them have A list of best practices. The State Department of Ed for the states have mostly made best practices. Here's 10, here's 20 practices, and motivation and engagement have made it into those lists.
0: That's thanks to you.
1: (laughs) That's where reading, you know, hits the road. Yeah. Um, And so now the, here's another thing, you know, you might say for teachers, If you go into a school and say, well, I'm interested in motivation and I'm interested in your teachers that, you know, might want to think about motivation. A a principal will say, oh, Mrs. Smith, she's our motivator. Uh She really gets her classroom going. Uh And then, Well, how does she do it? I don't know. It's magic. (laughs) People, a lot of people think that a motivating teacher just kind of has a piece of magic. Right. That it's that you're born with it. Right. That it's in you or it's not in you. Right. Well, it it's like it's true. That is true that some teachers are like that. But motivate teaching with motivation support is like playing a piano. You can have a gift and start out really well, but also you can go take lessons and get better at it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You can learn the practices that the good teachers utilize. And so one thing we showed very recently in 2014 in the Reading Research Quarterly is that we showed with the very same teachers and the very same classrooms of children, when teachers went from their traditional model over to the corey model, the kids experienced that change immediately through questionnaire data that we have They responded immediately with more motivation and engagement, and their achievement scores at the end of a month would change. So teachers can adopt the practices and put them in classroom. That is, these kind of practices to support being confident, support being social, support making choices, support perceiving the importance of reading for you. They can do they can do that. And the kids experience the difference. And um, so basically, then th- this is showing that it's n- certainly some teachers have a, a knack and a disposition and a gift, mm-hmm. but that's not restricted. It's not restricted. Motivation support is not restricted to teachers with a gift,
0: yeah.
1: although they can share a lot to other teachers. And teachers kind of adopt these. And the and guess who the big winner is in a motivating classroom? The teacher is the big yeah. winner. Yeah. Because her kids become self-engaging. Yeah. 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 And they want to do it. So she's, yeah. you know, she might say, "Well, just go spend ten minutes with your favorite book for to book for right now." Yeah. I've got something to do. They will. They'll do it. And yeah. Attention goes up. Distractions. Uh, absentees go down and the teacher gains a sense that she's in a collaboration with a class, not a yes. competition.
0: Yeah, yes.
1: And so then uh, it's a win-win. Oh, so yeah. basically the teacher, now it takes a little planning up front to, to plan to, sto- to support motivation, like what choice am I going to give my kids this week? I mean, you might have to think about that. Right once you do it and start to learn to do it you save a lot of time
0: it's so true yeah i feel like that's a secret yeah i mean that's it's not a secret but i feel like that's the one thing in teacher preparation and in service work is to is if i feel like is if we can just if teachers can and and pre-service teachers can understand that you know their worries of classroom management will just many times be alleviated yeah you know
1: Now, there's one one thing that I I want to bring in before we we, uh, run out of time, and that is there's a lot of issues regarding uh, ethnic minorities. And now African-American, Asian, Hispanic, other minorities, and how are they doing in school? And what about motivation for these students? Well, there's a very, well, there's one, There's bad news and there's good news. And the bad news is we do not know as much as we should about the motivations of minority students, especially African Americans. Then we know more about Asians, a little more. There have been a little more studies about them. Mm -hmm. And now the Asians have studied their own group. Um, And Hispanics have been studied a little bit, and African-Americans some, but not enough. So, for example, self-efficacy, what does self-efficacy really mean? How do you measure it really? And, for example, African-American students sometimes don't connect their self-efficacy, their belief in themselves, to their actual competency level. They might overrate themselves. They might underrate themselves. They do that more than some groups of white students. But if African-American students have a teacher who they think knows them and knows whether they can read, knows what they need, how they can help them, knows when they have succeeded and when they haven't succeeded, if they see their teacher as knowing their competency level and being able to help them, then they link their self-confidence to their achievement level.
0: right?
1: Even if it's high or if it's Mm -hmm. low. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, there's more to learn. There's more to learn on this front that, that needs to be explored. But there's another, even more crucially important thing to, to realize there are several studies Big studies showing that engagement, that is doing the reading, finishing the task, bringing the homework in, the engagement increases achievement more for Black than white students. It increases achievement more for low income than high income. It increases for everybody.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But so you see, engagement closes the achievement gap between majority and minority. So if you look at, for example, what does that mean? Closes the gap. Okay, for kids who are not very engaged in reading, they they don't do much reading. For that group of kids, there's a gap. Whites are better than blacks. Now, if you look at the students who read a lot, and are behaviorally engaged, they do homework handed in, are responsible and focused. There is no difference in achievement between white and black. There's no difference in achievement between high income and low income. Wow, that's interesting. So yeah. Engagement closes yeah. Yeah. these the opportunity gaps. Now, that has been shown for adolescents. We showed it for adolescents yeah. in our yeah, studies. Yeah, I was gonna
0: comment on that,
1: yeah. Um, it's true for a nationwide on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, grade four, that's, sh- that has also been shown in the United States. Mm-hmm. And for 15 year olds tested in the PISA international program, that's been shown worldwide. That is to say, the engagement closes the gap between less engaged and more engaged for regard uh regardless of socioeconomic status so um this is not a narrow finding that you yeah, see in yeah in one city right uh, right it's universal so this is a, a an empowerment that we ha- can be drawing from this research um now there's more much more to learn but um it, it's a it's an indicator of of a um an opportunity uh to help minority students to um to 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 toward the well-being that you know they, they they have a right to to enjoy
0: yeah oh yeah um so I wanted I wanted to ask you just a few questions now um I' love I love all the thinking I mean it's just my mind is like, it's like fireworks. I'm just thinking, wow, and all these connections. And um, uh, so I, I think one of the things I wanted to ask you about is what has like really surprised you the most about your work when you think about it? I mean, and you think about the international context that you've been in, and I feel like this is a hard question, but such an important question to ask for transformative leaders like you in the work. So what do you, what has really surprised you? And it can, it, anything, anything you're thinking about.
1: Well, I'm trying to think, surprise, I'm sure this changes over time. Um, A true educational researcher would say that. <laughs> well, you know, it's been different surprises at different points.
0: Yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me the Well,
1: okay, here's one, here's one surprise. Okay. I was invited to speak in south in johannesburg south africa to give a keynote talk to the reading teachers of south africa and this was a few just a few years ago and so i went down there and i and i and i i gave a a talk to the to the total group and it was well received i really enjoyed it now then the person who invited me was training secondary teachers and so he said would you come and give another talk to my secondary teachers <laughs> you're going to get offered so, another job <laughs> and so I, I I did I went there as an auditorium now think about this here's an auditorium four layers there were about 600 teachers there oh wow four layers of teachers in in this auditorium and I didn't you know I didn't know these people right? I didn't know that. So I began to talk about the different motivations. First of all, what are they? And I said, I, you know, we want our kids to be capable, uh, uh, to be confident in their capabilities. Yeah, they were nodding their heads. Said so we want them to be interested in what they read. Now, this audience of 600 African teachers in Johannesburg, they all said, (laughs) amen. And so I thought, well, that sounded pretty good. So I went on on to the next motivation, social. We we know our kids want to talk to each other and they can do it about reading so we can have social reading. And they said even louder. (laughs) They, they, They started to clap. Uh They started to say amen and clap. Uh And so then I went to the next one. And now they're getting more committed, more committed to these ideas. Uh And I then realized, here I am, I'm a a, a short little Scott guy who's (laughs) very light blue eyes standing up here in front of 700 teachers. And I better, you know, I, I better be careful. Because I don't know how far this is gonna go and, and what and and how far I want to push uh-huh. their excitement <laughs> factor. Right, right. So I, I dialed back and I got more I got more sort of sober about <laughs> about everything. But what was interesting was in Johannesburg, South Africa, they see the same problems and they feel the same joys that we do.
0: That's interesting.
1: This stuff is universal.
0: yeah yeah, it's universal.
1: This stuff wow. is, is, is universal. And they have their problems um, which are t- due to multiple languages coming in to the classroom. but they they their kids' motivation problems are just like ours down the road. Similar so to, that yeah. was a surprise. I did not know I did, wasn't expecting that level of uptake.
0: interesting. On, that's fascinating. On,
1: this topic because they are oriented much more to the language because they have seven big indigenous languages there the, they see that as the barrier to literacy and where they were they able to cope with those language differences in, in the classroom and so on they they get kids to read better so they think of it as a that's their challenge right and right they, they hadn't really thought about this other
0: aspect
1: of of challenge. And so that was one surprise. Um, Other surprises, I guess, would have to do with, um, well, the blending of the quantitative findings with the, you know, feeling of of uptake in in the profession that you know speaking to a group of teachers half of whom have a master's degree yeah. you know and half don't they want they they grow from both they grow from hearing that okay you had an experiment and this intervention paid off for kids they they <clears throat> they grow from that they also grow from the topic of, the topic of motivation and the topic that affect is being connected into the kids' lives and into the teachers' lives. They go from the, the statistics and they go from the topic.
0: So is this the surprise that it's able to be translated to practice? Is that what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, that 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 the research has a dual effect of being yes, scientifically. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, meaningful and and also uh, sort of humanistically valuable.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I mean that's that's such an, a wonderful way to think about it too, and and the different communities and how it can have impact. Um, do you have any other surprises or uh, those are quite hefty in
1: themselves. So well, I guess I've been <clears throat> I was surprised at how graduate students were able to be become involved and become you know uh, self-determining in 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 this research area. <clears throat> um that they they were able to become researchers um, and uh, and to um, you know fulfill their own interests really, really well in this in this domain. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, they 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 gained they gained self realization.
0: Yeah, I was going to say that sounds very much motivationally connected. You know, they they had those. Um, they valued it, right? They connected those components yeah. that, were, that were connected to it. Um, so, given your career striving to transform thinking, what is your current view or current advice to the field?
1: Well, I know that's a a really crucial question um, and and our time is pretty pretty limited. I, I guess I think that um, I think there's a lot of transformations taking place. Um, I think reading is being transformed because it's not just narrative anymore. it's 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 this other search world and a navigation world. Writing is being transformed. We have AI. As a, as a collaborator. Now the same motivations that impact the print research, the print reading that we've, we've seen and the print writing that we've seen, these same motivation systems are gonna be working. We need to do studies to confirm and show how that's happening, but there's no need to throw away what we know. What we know is gonna generalize. Now we need to study how how it needs to be fine-tuned for digital literacy, let's just say, but it doesn't mean we have a new motivation set for digital literacy. Uh, so we need to retain the strength of our current uh, knowledge base, and then and then fine-tune it for where for where we're going. Um, now, I do think that there is the the, the sort of <clears throat> reading research as a science is strong. There's a lot of participation and a lot of growth going on right now. It's also true that there's, you know, there are, there are some people that prefer to pursue an ideology and who prefer to prioritize advocacy as a way of being being a professional, right? And I think that we need to maintain as much of an open conversation as we can across these differences in viewpoint that 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 are growing.
0: I love that. I really love that. So, how about and any um, um, advice to the field in terms of um, uh, uh, other additional advice that you have?
1: Well, I guess I would say I think we need to really accentuate education as a profession, really step up as professionals and show to the world that we know what it means to read well. We know the power of books for people. We know that in, what, what, our, what our knowledge base is about the role of books in people's lives, about, the, about uh, what the limits are, what the strengths are. And, and not sell out our our self our our self-direction to people who are politically motivated and who want to create their own conspiracy ideas about our profession right so we need to articulate our profession <clears throat> to a, a broader a, a broader public
0: right. You know,
1: I will say psychology as a field has said three decades ago, we need to give the profession away. We need to give psychology away to the public so they understand what it is and what it can do for them.
0: Hmm.
1: We need a political psychology movement in which we communicate. That's what American Psychological Association did. And the and the reading world, as well as the education world, needs to articulate its its strength and its priorities to the public, so that we 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 don't get misled and we don't get essentially sabotaged by 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 ideology.
0: That's so such that's so wise. That's such good good thinking. And um, I I yeah. want to say that I would love to talk with you for hours and hours more because <laughs> I just I think you're fascinating and you're wonderful and my cheeks hurt because I'm smiling so much throughout this conversation
1: it's been <laughs> easy to talk with you they really Believe do <laughs> you, you make an amazing audience for this conversation oh. and and it's it's I'm I'm honored to have you asking these questions and doing doing this entire project I think it's it's a uh, it's it's um basically uh, a sign of uh, a lot of a lot of wisdom on your own part, Dr. Gut- Guthrie, you are really one of my heroes, and
0: before I tear up and uh, say anything more, I just wanted to say thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, your work has is just it just it's it continues today and it always will forever. And so thank you so much for all of your work and for your goals of helping us all to get smarter. You're one of my heroes, and I just want to say
1: thank you so much. I think it's a terrific project, and um, I'm gonna start reading your uh, work as I see it.
0: Oh, thank you so much.